Turn with me to Daniel chapter 8 as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Last week we looked at Daniel chapter 8 in its entirety. Today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8 verse 27. Just that one verse. As I want to kind of look at some of the themes there, as not only does it apply to the context of Daniel 8, but it also applies to really the context of the whole book. And I think it's a helpful uh, verse for us, and not only understanding what's going on in the book of Daniel, but also as seeing, watching how Daniel processes these things and how we should as a church. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, we pray as we always do that you would help us with it because we are sinful and even sometimes our best motivations are skewed by the sin in our lives. We want this word from you to be specifically about us or to be for our glory and not yours. We want it to be a word about how our lives should be easy and how the world around us is really just worse than we are. And we should receive a pat on the back for how good we are. We want your word to glorify us. So Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would be glorified that you would be glorified in the reading, the preaching, the hearing of your word, and that your word would change us. That would change what we do, how we think, and who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my family and I went to Six Flags this last week, and it made me think about waiting. Honestly, we didn't have to wait in line very much, but I still got to watch people wait, and I love to do that, just watch people in general. And if you watch people for long enough, you discover that there's lots of different ways that that people wait on things. Nowadays, waiting usually involves staring at a phone, right? We're all familiar with that. Either they're actually looking at something on their phone, maybe they're looking something up or getting a notification or something, or they're just staring at their phone to keep from interacting with you. Uh, some people wait by needing a constant report of their current status, right? They're counting the people that are in line. Well, how many more, how many more roller coasters have to go through before it's my turn? Or they're asking, are we there yet? You know, every 20 minutes or so. Some are just staring off into nothingness. Captivated by their own thoughts, perhaps, or nothing at all. Who knows what they're thinking about. But there isn't necessarily a right way to wait at all, but there is definitely a wrong way to wait, especially when it comes on waiting on the promises of God. As we drift oftentimes into anxiety and worry, waiting, our waiting easily becomes unbelief. As we've been studying through the book of Daniel, there's been lots of waiting, Right As the narrative portion of this book, there's this kind of understood waiting that's going on. We have Daniel and his friends. They're waiting. They're waiting to finally see their Savior come, who they know is supposed to come, right? who Cyrus is supposed to come, and they're going to punish the wrongdoers for doing what they've done. And in their waiting, though, they've been punished themselves for doing what was right. In the prophecy section that we've been in the last few weeks, we've read there's some more waiting. 
But these wait, this kind of waiting is for events that aren't going to happen for maybe even hundreds of years in the future. And there's also this waiting that we're ultimately waiting for, for God Himself to come. For, for Daniel, it was for God to come in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. For us, it's waiting for Jesus to, to come back, right? We, we understand this kind of waiting. We understand it now. Maybe even wondering how God is going to orchestrate our lives and waiting to see or the lives of our loved ones. Even wondering why God is doing the things that He's doing and why He's doing them the way that He's doing them. We wait on Jesus' return. We long for the day that He will return, ushering in a new time when we'll be with Him for all eternity. So many times, so much waiting in our lives. We consider this verse in Daniel chapter 8. I want to look at it from the standpoint of waiting, not just considering the immediate context there, but its place in the whole book as we look at that. There are other verses similar to this one in the book as we read Daniel's concerns about the prophecies that he's... But this seemed like a good place to kind of park here and talk about this. He deals with waiting in a few ways, and then we'll see him finally as a human, I think, dealing with this in difficult Ways. So as we consider this one verse, I want to have three main ideas. First, assurance with no understanding. Second, resolve in the face of judgment. And then finally, persistence at the end. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Daniel chapter 8, verse 27. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. This is Daniel 8, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, as we've been going through Daniel, perhaps you've been looking at other things or doing some of your own personal study through the Bible or even looking on the internet and reading things or reading in other books. I hope you have actually. I strongly encourage that. One of the things that I've neglected to talk about up to this point is this is how Christians often categorize prophecy. And I think it's really important actually. There are three main categories and you've probably heard these words in passing from me or from other some other book or on who knows, you've probably heard them. And these are the words Premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. You've probably heard these words, and they're big, fancy-sounding words, but I think they are helpful when it comes to our understanding of end times and prophetic literature like we have today. It's good to have these words in your back pocket. Why do I say that? It's just like any time you receive something new, whether it's even an item or a new idea, it's good to have a place to put that thing. Right? If you don't have a place to put new things, they just tend to pile up and they become useless. Having a place to categorize them makes them more useful. So when we receive new information, or even old information again, it's good to be able to organize that. And I think these three terms help us to organize our thoughts concerning this type of literature. Those words have to do with something called the millennia, or this thousand-year reign of Christ that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, which I'm not going to turn to, but if you want to read there on your own, it's the first six verses when Christ is to return to earth and reign for a thousand years or a millennia, 
Well, there's three groups on that. The pre-mills, pre-millennial, or pre-thousand, think that he's coming back before the thousand-year reign. And so he's going to come back, and he's going to reign for a thousand years, bringing peace with him, ruling with an iron scepter is what we're told. And so what this camp tends to look at Scripture, and they are not Scripture, but they tend to look at society with this kind of pessimistic bent to it. There's no hope for society. It's only going to get worse leading up to that time of Jesus' return. And so we're just waiting for him to come in and clean things up. Well, you can imagine then the other side of that, the post-mill group, believe Jesus is coming after that thousand-year reign of peace. That he's going to reign for a thousand years and then he's going to return. What does that mean? That the gospel is going to go forward and things are going to get progressively better leading up to the return of Christ. And this camp tends to be more optimistic about society because they long for the day to see the world come to this place of peace, right? And so what are they doing? Well, they're going out into society and they're more involved with society typically than pre-mill types are. And then you have the all-mill types who believe the thousand-year reign is a spiritual kind of symbolic understanding. It's not a true 1,000 years, but it's a it's kind of a symbolism, symbolic of what's currently going on, that we currently live in that time, the present millennium. And society, yes, they are doomed, but at the same time, the gospel is able to penetrate that doom and bring order and change through the Savior Jesus Christ. Why do I mention all this stuff? Well, the only reason I mention it is because it shows the different ways that Christians wait. It shows that the way that we wait can be heavily influenced by our theology. Our theology should be influenced, of course, by the words of God's Word. The teaching of God's Word tells us that without Christ, there is no hope. And it also teaches us that the kingdom of God has come to earth and is coming to earth. We're taught not to get mixed up in the teachings and the passions of this world, right? Throughout the New Testament in particular, we're told this over and over. But we're taught to be a people that are holy and blameless before God. Yet we're also taught to pray for their salvation. We're taught to pray that God's kingdom would come. We've already prayed that once together this morning. That your kingdom come. That we are His instruments in seeing that prayer answered. And you've heard me use this phrase, already, not yet, before. You've probably heard me say that. If not, we live in this idea of already, not yet. Regardless of what camp you fall into concerning that millennial maze that I presented quickly to you, we can all agree in God's promises that many of them have already been fulfilled in Christ. And we celebrate those, but yet we are waiting to see Him fulfill even more. We're waiting for the day when all things will be made new. So we wait. And we watch Daniel wait in this verse today. And his waiting is helpful for us, even if he doesn't understand anything. I think it's helpful for us to know that he doesn't, because we often don't either. That brings us to the first point, assurance with no understanding. First, I want to look at this idea in the second half of that verse that Daniel was appalled and that he did not understand the vision that he was given. This is probably surprising to us up to this point because up to this point in the text, Daniel has understood everything, right? Even things that he shouldn't have understood, he understood. He understands things even if he hasn't been told 
Remember, Nebuchadnezzar wanted someone to not only interpret his dream, but to tell them what his dream was. And Daniel was able to do that. He's interpreted several dreams and visions along the way, all because he was given, of course, an extra measure of wisdom from the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord on him at those times, even giving to him direct revelation that we have before us today, not only for us, but for the people in Daniel's time as well, for Daniel himself, as he received this revelation directly from the Lord. As we've looked at chapters 7 and 8, he's been, he was given this vision of beasts and rams and goats and horns, and he was even given an angel to come and interpret those things for him and to say, this is what these things mean. And especially in chapter 8, the angel was very specific. And as we looked at these things, we tended to be able to line up history along with the angel Gabriel's interpretation, how Alexander was the first king of Greece and that his sudden death led to his four generals taking over and that was the four horns in chapter 8 right and then there was this one little horn that grew up out of one of those generals and persecuted Jerusalem and persecuted even their worship it seemed pretty plain to us as we looked at that so we may wonder why didn't Daniel understand this we have history on our side right Daniel didn't Daniel was seeing this from the vantage point of the present. In his present, he was in Babylon. The giant, the giant goat, or not goat, the giant ram as it were at the time, seemed invincible until it wasn't. The Medes and the Persians seemed this way in their current state as well. And if you go back really far, you could even say that maybe teenage Daniel all the way back to when we first met Daniel back in chapter 1, had trouble imagining how Jerusalem could possibly be destroyed. How can this city Jerusalem possibly be destroyed? And how could the temple of God possibly be desecrated? It took so long to build and it was such a wonderful thing. And how could it possibly be taken apart the way that it was? Sure, those before him had prophesied such that these things were going to happen. But it must have been hard to imagine that these things were actually going to become true. And we understand this on lots of levels as we wait for things. So many times the anticipation of the thing is much different than the thing itself. I mean, getting on a roller coaster, for me personally, roller coasters are like getting not as easy for me. And I had to think about it a little bit more. And sometimes... The roller coaster, or the anticipation of getting on the roller coaster is much more difficult than the actual ride itself. So often our waiting causes more misunderstanding than it helps. It can even color our reality more than it needs to. Daniel knew the truth of God. It wasn't as if he didn't know the truth about God. He knew the promised Messiah was to come. He knew that the king, the, the promised king from David would always be on the throne of God. He knew that God would always have a people for Himself. He knew that there would be a time when the Spirit of God would actually come and inhabit the people of God and that the Spirit would literally cause them to walk in His ways. Can you imagine Daniel must have longed for this time? Yet in his present time, he was appalled. The vision was confusing. Brothers and sisters, a lot of times when it comes to our views of the Bible and the category that we align with when it comes to the Bible's teachings on the future, the fact that Daniel 
this Daniel lacked understanding and all his wisdom should cause us to be humble, completely humble. Rather than being sure of ourselves when it comes to these words of prophecy, we should be ready for God to do things that we wouldn't believe, even if we were told. That even if we were told these things, we wouldn't believe them. It could be that many of the things that we read about will be fulfilled spiritually as they come to pass. It could be many of the things that we think are going to be spiritually fulfilled are actually going to happen in reality. We don't know. But we, like Daniel, can hang on to the promises that we do know. But it doesn't necessarily make it easier. Daniel suffered because of these visions as we read. And he was even appalled by them. That brings me to the next point, resolve in the face of judgment. Next, I want to look at this idea as it says in verse 27 that Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days. That he was appalled by the vision that he had. Remember we talked about this last week, how Daniel knew that part of the promise concerning Babylonian captivity, or part of the promise was that Babylonian captivity would end. That Babylon wouldn't have them forever. And he already knew this concerning the prophet Jeremiah's teaching, right? That they were going to be there for 70 years, and then after that 70 years, they would finally be able to go home back to Jerusalem, and that the temple was going to be restored, and he was had to have been excited about that. He even knew the name of his deliverer, right? From the prophet Isaiah, that Cyrus, this man named Cyrus that no one had even met, no one that wasn't even born was going to come in and it was going to, to save the people of Israel and was going to deliver them from Babylon. But there was this other bit that the angel Gabriel gave him that must have concerned him, did concern him, made him sick, appalled him, concerning the nation of Greece. There was this four horns and then there was this little horn that was going to rise up and persecute Israel and even stop their worship even go into their temple and desecrate their temple to make it an abomination. As Daniel looks forward to a day where there will be no more persecution and he'll be home, what does he see from the angel Gabriel? Only more persecution and more destruction. For the people of Israel, this had been their lot throughout history, has been their lot throughout history, has continued even into the 20th century under Hitler, times that we're more familiar with. But Daniel chapter 7 and 8 mentions another group specifically, several times actually, it mentions this group called the saints of God, which we understand from the New Testament, who are the God's people, true Israel, whom Christ is the head, the body of Christ, His church, those people for whom He came to save. That includes, yes, Israel, but also all the nations of the earth. That people, too, has only ever known persecution. True, at times, the church has been the persecutor, which is the story for any oppressed group that gains power. But for the most part, the church has been persecuted time and time again throughout history. But this wasn't a secret. Jesus said that this would happen. Even in times when it didn't seem possible that it would happen anymore. As you read through church history, there's these bright spots in church history where you think, well, maybe finally, finally the church has reached a plateau or a place where it's no longer going to receive persecution, but it can finally kind of 
arrive. Like when Rome became a Christian empire. Surely Christians thought finally some relief from our persecution. Or maybe when Roman Catholicism was basically in control of all of Europe. They thought, well, finally, finally we're going to have some relief. Or if in this country, we look back to an earlier time, right? When, when Christianity was part of the moral fiber of this country and we thought we wish we could just go back to those times when things were so much better. So often in this country, we tend to idolize the good old days as these times that when Christianity was doing so much better than it is today. During those times, it may have seemed like persecution had finally come to its end. The kingdom of God had fully come and God was going to usher in this time of great peace. But it hadn't. It hasn't. It won't. Not until Jesus comes back. How do we know? Jesus told us. John 16.33 In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So let's look at Daniel. We've had this version of Daniel up to this point, right? It's pretty much been impeccable. We can't even look and see anything that he's done wrong at all. But all of a sudden in 827, we read that he was overcome and he lay sick and he was appalled by this thing that was given to him by God. And he didn't understand it. So was he wrong to be appalled? Was he wrong to be sick over future judgment awaiting his people? As they longed for a Savior, but realizing that they were just going to have to wait. Are we wrong to be appalled by persecution now as we read persecution happening in the rest of the world and even as it's starting to to creep into what we think of the more civilized parts of the world? Are we wrong to be upset as we wait for the future kingdom of God to come in its fullness? No. In Revelation 6... There's a picture of the saints in heaven. And they're wondering, how long, O Lord, until you come and you make this right? Turn with me to Revelation 6. I think this is very appropriate for our time together this morning. I actually recommend Revelation 5 and 6 to you as kind of a helpful addition to understanding this is how this is going on. There's lots of stuff there that's fun to read to about the four horsemen and all that kind of stuff. I often found my, myself reading that during when I was a kid in church, just finding something interesting to read while the pastor was preaching. So if you all need that, there you go. Um, so yeah, we're going to read this part. Uh, Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. Again, the question, is it wrong for us to wait? Well, we have people here who are waiting in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long till you avenge our blood, those who were slain? I love God's answer here. It's really not one. And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed 
as they themselves have been. How long till our blood is avenged, till you come and you bring peace? They're not given an answer. The Lord doesn't owe them that answer, right? Gives them a robe instead and tells them to rest a little longer until their number is complete, which is going to include even more being killed in the name of Jesus. And as we read this, we may wonder, well, then how should we respond? How should we live? It's the question of, of every Christian as we come to the God's Word and we read the proclamation of God's Word, and then how should we live? Knowing these things are probably confusing. Knowing that judgment has not even yet reached its peak on the earth. That the world, that the church will suffer more before Jesus comes. How should we live? How long, O Lord? And that brings us to the next point, persistence at the end. One of my favorite lines in the book of Daniel is found here in Daniel 8.27, and I think because it speaks to my need or desire to finish things that I start, and I just, I just hate to see things that are like incomplete, like frayed ends. As Daniel has this kind of incompleteness about him, right? What does he do when he is overcome and he lays sick for some days? Then I rose and I went about the king's business. What was Daniel's response to being overcome and being confused and appalled by the things that he had been shown? He rose and he went about the king's business. Lower case K there. Who? Belshazzar, the pagan king of Babylon. That's whose business Daniel went about. He got up and went back to work. And we've read up to this point, what kind of work did Daniel put out? He was the best. There was no one better. In fact, he was chosen over Babylonians. Babylonians who worshipped the ground that Belshazzar walked on. Daniel, in exile, was chosen over them. Making sure that the pagan king of Babylon succeeded in what he did. And that the glory of the Almighty God even in the midst of this pagan nation, was given its proper due. Daniel never shrank back from either task, making sure Babylon was great and making sure the name of God was praised. He did both, even in the literal face of lions. This idea in theological terms is called Christian vocation. We've been studying... On Wednesday nights, we've been studying this book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and as I prepared for this message uh, yesterday and, and this week, it made me think, well, that's what I want to teach on next, is this doctrine of Christian vocation. And basically, what is vocation? It's that Christian is called to live as becomes a Christian in all of life, whether it be our marriage, our families, our workplaces, even our work inside the church, the work that we do inside the church. We are called to live as a follower of Christ ought to live. Even in the membership vows that we have here in this church, we vow. One of the things that we vow as members of this church is to trust in the guidance and strength of the Holy Spirit to live all life as a Christian, following the example set by Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of vocation. 
When Daniel rises and goes about the king's business, he is giving us a perfect example of this doctrine in all of life. All of life. What kind of life did Daniel have? He lived under a pagan king, under direct persecution from those he served. He did the king's business, and there was no one in the land that did better than he did. That doesn't mean that he sinned when he was doing his work. When he was asked to do something, he did it unless he was asked to sin, and then he didn't do it. Right? When he was asked to sin, he didn't. He paid the price. Him and his friends both. His friends were thrown into a furnace. He was thrown into a lion's den when they did not sin. But when it came to the business of the kingdom that didn't involve Daniel sinning in any way, he went about it in an upright way to see the kingdom prosper, to see the king himself do well in his own life. And again, find a a better person in the kingdom of Babylon than this man Daniel. What a better picture of Jesus himself than to have this picture of Daniel. And what did Jesus do? He went about the Father's business. The Father's business to have a people for himself. Even to the point of death on the cross. The Father wanted to have a people for himself. And Jesus, the Son of God, came and secured salvation for those people by giving his life as a ransom for them. By his work, we are healed and we are saved for all time. He has done it. He did the work and it's done. And if anyone should have or could have shrank back from the business at hand due to their immediate circumstances that were around them, it was Jesus, right? God Almighty, the Son of God in the flesh, dealing with sinful man directly, could have, but he didn't. He set his mind to his work, and he did it. When it comes to waiting in this life, we may be quick to see the world around us. Maybe even as we look at our jobs, see the futility. As we look at our families even, and we think, well, maybe this is all for naught. What good can possibly come of this? We may be tempted to wait by the proverbial Bible bus stop, cell phone in hand, ignoring the world around us and hoping desperately that no one speaks to us or asks us for the reason that the hope that we have. But we've already prayed this morning, brothers and sisters, I heard all of you, your kingdom come. And you know how God answers that prayer? It's by the hands and feet of his people in this world. So the question for you then is what are you doing toward that end? How are you serving your family, your workplace, your church? Are you seeking to be served? Are you doing the serving? Are you looking for someone named somebody? Up to this point, I've never met that person, but everyone talks about them, what somebody should be doing. Are you waiting, hoping that no one will call you to action Or do you actively want to see the kingdom of God come to this earth? Christians, we can see this kingdom simply by rising and going about the business of those that we're under. 
we should not only distinguish ourselves in the work of our church, in the work of our families, which is oftentimes easy, but in our workplaces as well. And when someone asks, what motivates you? Why do you, why do you do what you do? When someone else, so many others are just lagging behind and doing the bare minimum, what motivates you? Then our answer can be that while I wait, I want to be about the Lord's business. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, that you, you can only find toil in your work, even in your families, even in your marriage. There's only toil there because what is that going? Where does it end? If you don't believe in Jesus, where does it end? It ends in you, and there's no hope there. There's no meaning outside of the only one who can give hope and purpose in this life, and that's our Lord Jesus. And if you do not believe that Jesus is your Savior, call upon his name today and be saved. Find salvation for your soul, the only one who can save you, the only one who can provide that purpose in this lost world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's normal for us to look around while we wait and be confused and even appalled at the world around us. But let us not lose heart. Let's continue to do the work to which we are called, the work to know God and to make Him known. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to You in prayer this morning, we come to You as those who are, even on our best days, we're confused at the world around us. We're appalled at what we see. Sometimes we are even so overcome that we may even lay sick for some days, as this prophet did so many years ago. So Lord, we pray that you would help us. That you would help us to remember your promises. They're still true today. They're true for each one of us. They have not stopped being true because of the things that are going on around us. They've not stopped being true even because of how we feel. And so, Lord, we pray that you would change us, that you would use your word, that you would change us, not just simply change us, but empower us to go out into a lost world, teaching them the hope that we have in our Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.